This is Hans Reamer, Montgomery County Council Member, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canelli here with Michael Sanderson and a special guest today, Mako's Legislative Director, Natasha Mayhew. Natasha, how are you today? Good. How are you? Very well. Michael, how are you today? Feeling fine. All right. On today's podcast, we are going to do a 2019 General Assembly session preview, talk about some bills that not only are county bills, but also some of the bills that will affect the entire state and are not necessarily just county issues. To start off, Michael and Natasha, we do know that this session has started off on a bit of a somber note as Senate President, longtime Senate President Mike Miller announced that he has been diagnosed with prostate cancer. Right. And that's, I mean, that, that sends everybody for a spin. I, I've been working the halls in Annapolis for more than 25 years, and I don't know what a Maryland Senate without Mike Miller up at the front and <laughs> behind the roster. I don't know what that looks like or feels like. So, um, but fortunately, um, he's he, he delivered what I think a lot of people received as good news that you know he's he's planning to to stay in his role. He's fighting through this, and you know he's getting treatment and, and that sort of thing. But he's he, he's not stepping down. He's uh, he's stepping up. News started to break Wednesday night that he was going to make an announcement about his health and all kinds of speculation around town about exactly what the state of his health was right now. But it sounds like he will stick around. And Natasha, I know, you know, we were around Wednesday night when all the speculation was rampant and everyone was talking about this. So it started to leak out. And then by the time he finally made his announcement, everybody sort of knew what was coming. Yeah, but I think we could all say that we really wish him the a speedy recovery. For sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, as everyone is around town, we wish Senator Miller a quick and speedy recovery for mm-hmm. sure. Okay. So we know, Natasha and Michael, that 2019 brings in a lot of new legislators, new faces here in Annapolis. We have 60 new legislators, a third of the Senate turned yeah. over. Yeah. So a lot to figure out, but it's great to see all these new faces around town, a lot of new energy. Yeah. It's the largest group of um, uh, elected women legislators. Right. It, it's one of those things where you, you can see it on paper. You, know, you see reported the numbers and that sort of stuff. And everybody's got these statistics. But I'll tell you, the first day around town, because people are moving into their offices and they're setting up their phone lines and other things like that. And it's it's just it, it's a it's an overwhelming thing. And there's a there's I mean, it's a it's a young, diverse, largely female group coming in. And I think that that is a it is a visible and sort of palpable change around town. So it's, a, it's kind of a, it's a big deal. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, finding your office and hanging up your pictures and getting everything set up. People take for granted that it takes a little time just to figure out your way around the Maryland General Assembly, the House and Senate office buildings, and Annapolis in general. Yeah, way too. You have to learn all these little like alleyways yes, and the quickest yes. way to walk. Right. Yeah. <laughs> not to mention those. To not to mention those tunnels. Right. <laughs> the, tunnels. The, 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 the tunnels. It's sort of like no, don't do the tunnels. Wait, wait till year tunnels. two or three to, to figure out the tunnels from the house to the Senate <laughs> and everything. No, don't do that. That would make sense. That would make sense. You got to take it a little at a time. But. Well, the, the old joke in town was that the first year legislators, no one told them that there were actually professional. There were lawyers down in the in the basement somewhere that would draft bills for you. So the idea of you know, only the veterans put in the bills and 
just wait. Do you, wait, well, how does that work again? Oh, yeah, maybe next year. We'll sort that out for yeah, you. You'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. <laughs> hazing, it out. right? Is it? <laughs> hazing, hazing. But great to see all these new faces around town. And the General Assembly certainly will have a different tone, I think, this year and moving forward. But let's get into our session preview, and we'll start, Michael and Natasha. I mean, we can't we can't not talk about the Kerwin Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education. Yeah, we can't we can't go cold turkey. It's, I think it's you know it's probably twenty three straight episodes of the podcast where we've said the name <laughs> Kerwin. So I mean, Kerwin actually is right there with Guam as our most frequent mention. So I think Guam uh, might have it, <laughs> right? might have it, but yeah, Kerwin's right there with it. But Michael and Natasha, we know that. As we've discussed on previous episodes, the, this commission has been delayed a bit. We still expect the commission to vote on a final report, but this year we won't see all the big formulaic changes. We won't see that debate, and that's because the Senate President Mike Miller and Speaker Michael Bush have asked the commission to delay that that part of the conversation. But we will still see some temporary funding discussions this year and some discussions on potential policy shifts. So some stuff on the table big fight or discussion will happen next year. Yeah, I think I mean if if you were looking for an indicator as to whether this is still a big deal right now at at, at our winter conference we had we had a, a session set aside which we we put on the schedule months ago as we're building out a January conference figuring okay, we're going to have a report or we're going to have an idea what the legislation is going to look like and this will be the big hot topic. We'll have a jam-packed room full of people who want to know, wh- you know what's the latest with this big, big topic that's going to get settled in this coming session. And then you know, the, you know, the letter shows up and the commission has sort of divided its work now between what we can do now and p- big parts going later. We were a little bit afraid that the enthusiasm on that topic would have waned. That room was still jam-packed, still lots of questions, and I think still a lot of interest in in, in sort of patch-over funding, even if it ends up being a one-year program or something along those lines. You know, we, the three of us, were, were talking to the new county executive from Prince George's, uh, Angela Alsobrooks, and, and she was saying, you know, you can still move the needle with a few hundred million dollars. You can do a lot of things that matter, and I think, I think a lot of people feel that way. I would agree. Natasha, I'm sure you've heard this buzz, too, around town. People are still obviously interested in what this commission will recommend and how we will decide what the state and what the local governments pay for education. Yeah, I can't say that I have had any meetings where um, this did not come up. Right. It's usually right. the yeah, first right. thing people raise is, so about Kerwin. I'm sure you love hearing about it, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's definitely on the table, some stuff on the table, at least for 2019. But this will be mostly, I think, a 2020 conversation. So let's move right into healthcare, Natasha. This is one of your issue areas. You are the expert here on the podcast. What do we see for 2019 in terms of healthcare and drug costs? Yeah, so a lot of um, big items on the agenda. So one is potential for state-level insurance mandate. Um, This would be to replace the federal mandate that was more or less eliminated with last year's uh, tax bill. And so um, Delegate Pena Melnick and Senator Feldman um, have proposed a bill that would um, uh, create an individual mandate um, and use the penalty for uh, not paying as a down payment of sorts so that you could use that money to still purchase insurance on the market. Hmm. You have to think that there's 
probably a lot of states who are thinking this way as well, who sort of you know, rolled out their exchanges and under the Affordable Care Act, they felt like they had a plan. And now with the tax penalty disappearing at the federal level, you have to think we're not the only state that's probably looking at this situation and saying, we'd like to plug that hole and find some way to address it at the state level if the feds aren't going to have that. Right. And in, in fact, uh, Massachusetts and New Jersey have already passed um, uh, similar legislation. And right. we've talked on the podcast before about how local governments, state governments have to react when the federal government doesn't get something done. So I think this is a good example of states reacting to the federal government removing that individual mandate and tr- trying to figure out how they can close this loophole in the system. Right. Correct. So it's not, it's not an easy feat necessarily. This could be costly or it could be yeah, administratively difficult. So, I mean, a good deal to sort out between now and a bill signing ceremony. But, I mean, those are high-profile sponsors. There's a, lot, there's a lot of chatter about doing something here, and I suspect in other state houses too. So, yeah, that's, that's mm-hmm. an eye grabber. Absolutely. And Natasha, anything on prescription drugs? I know there's been a lot of talk about that as well. Oh, yes, of course there is. And so, um, you know, lots of talk about how drug prices are too high. They're raising really high, really quickly, making it difficult for a lot of people to afford their medications. And as you can imagine, in some cases, you will have uh, medications that are in the tens of thousands of dollars. Mm. So, uh, a bill that's returning from last year, um, sponsored by Delegate Peña Melnick and Kathy Kossmeyer, um, would create a board to review the cost mm. of new drugs. And it intends to set a sort of benchmark for the drugs that they look into. Um, and being those drugs that are $30,000 or higher in cost. Um, and then the board would be able to uh, either set their own rates for those drugs or review the supply chain, basically be empowered to do something about um, exorbitantly high-priced drugs. Right. So, I mean, I, I mean, I think this this sort of thing has made headlines, not not even thinking about state legislatures, but has made headlines for you know, a variety of reasons. I mean, you, you know, you've got these – characters who go out and buy the patent on some drug and then suddenly you know the price goes up 10 or 20 fold and someone's just trying to make a big buck doing that uh, so they can whatever go buy a wu-tang album mm-hmm. anyway yeah, it's fun. <laughs> but 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 also like like epipens right i mean i mean that's that that's the one that that i've heard in my neighborhood people are saying i want to get a new prescription for my daughter's epipen because she has an allergy and this used to be 60 bucks and now i just had to pay 350 what you know what is going Going on three fifty if they right. even have them right, right. oh yeah yeah and it's a shortage yeah. right yeah so mm. uh, so I mean so you can you can sense there are people who are worried here and it's I mean it's a little bit different issue than just having health insurance. Or, or you know, having coverage for for basic care, it's a little bit different. But you know, if you have a life saving or emergency or maintenance medication, and suddenly the one company that makes it suddenly you know, the the price doubles, triples, quadruples, that you know, that can upend your whole life. Yeah, so, I mean, you, know. you don't want to be forced to be. Choosing between, you know, whether you eat and whether you get your medication. Right, yeah. I guess, I guess the, tr- the the tricky part of this though is. It's a state legislature, and right, right. and and so you know we've had conversations before about sort of 
uh, where is the line drawn between what states can do and what becomes interstate commerce, you know, written so broadly that that's Congress's job. And I guess, you know, Maryland has a relatively heavy hand in healthcare, and we already do price settings for hospitals, and, and, and you know, we have a rate commission that's – if it's not unique, it's close to it. And not many states would do this. Um, so you know, looking to expand the state role in overseeing this sort of thing is, is uh, a little bit of new territory. But, Absolutely. Yeah, it, it certainly is tricky because in 2017, they passed, the General Assembly passed a law um, giving the AG, the Attorney General, authority to crack down on price gouging, and that was found unconstitutional mm, yeah. in federal courts. Right. So, so trying to thread that needle to address this public concern in some way that passes judicial muster and also, you know, makes all the players who are in the business of, you know, in the business of, of selling medications. Is, that's a challenge. Mm-hmm. Certainly will be a challenge. And let's get into another challenge. And the General Assembly will have to face hashtag fight for 15 this year. And this is all about the minimum wage. We know in Maryland, our minimum wage right now just went up to 1010, and that was a phase in over a couple of years. In Virginia, it's 725. In Pennsylvania, it's 725, which is also the federal minimum wage. Right, that's the floor. West Virginia is 875. So different rates in states around Maryland, but there is a big fight to get to $15 minimum wage here in Maryland. We've seen States like Massachusetts, California, uh, the District of Columbia have all enacted these phase in $15 an hour. So over a number of years, they'll get there. But this is a very controversial issue. And it seems this is another one that folks are talking about around town. And, And Michael, I don't know what you all have heard, but it sounds to me like this is pretty much a done deal. It's just how you're going to figure out the phase in or does the do the rurals have the same wage as you know, maybe some of the more populated areas. Is, is that the sense that you're getting as well? I, I'm, I'm reluctant to, to say that this one is a done deal just because I, I think it will uh, it will attract attention in a lot of implementation ways. And whether, you know, whether that's a you accomplish some calming by a phase in or you tend to some specific communities who who have a peculiar case, I don't know. But um I mean, you know, you both have, have attended a couple of these early session events and hearing from the presiding officers and leadership and so forth. I mean, the, the word seems to be a lot of optimism. A lot of the supporters believe it's happening this year in Maryland and we'll, we'll add Maryland to this, this list of states who are moving in that direction. So, so whether it's whether it's four years or six years or with carve outs or whatever. So we could expect they'll do something with the minimum wage, but the devil is in the details. I think it has a has a potential to be challenging. I, in 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 my mind, this this might be the the first big visible test for what appears to be a more progressive inclined Maryland Senate. And Talk this, a little bit about that. Yeah. yeah. So what do you mean by that? Well, we were we were we we got into this a little bit after the June primaries, looking at particularly some of the Democratic senators who. Um, who who lost in their primary, mostly being replaced by sitting delegates, and it looks like the ideological center may may have moved a bit to the left in the Senate, and if that's the case, the Senate sort of for the last term, really the last two or three terms, the Senate was sort of the arbiter of 
social you know, and, and progressive issues and how far they could go, a lot of environmental and a lot of labor things. So it was the Senate who would be thinking about the business community and be sympathetic to special cases and so forth and try and work out details like that. Uh, this Senate, we got to find out what their what their appetite is for aggressive measures like this. So um, I think I, I think we'll find out a lot about the the Maryland Senate when the fight for fifteen. Yeah, there's going to be there'll be marches, there'll be buses of people coming to Annapolis, and with optimism that happens this year, um, suddenly there'll be there'll be a lot of pressure to like work out what you can live with, and right. you know, we'll see. Yeah, certainly, I think it's going to be a challenge. And as you mentioned, there'll be folks from both sides uh, talking about why this is good or why this is bad and how it will affect their communities. So certainly an interesting to keep an eye on. And and I agree, this will tell us a lot about the Senate uh, as we move forward into 2019. Right. And the the Senate Finance Committee is where labor-related issues tend to go. And most people in town are very interested in what the new Finance Committee is going to look like. Big change in membership. Big change in leadership and a lot of uncertainty what's going to happen with labor things and other stuff that go there. We're going to go ahead and take a quick break. When we come back, we will continue our 2019 General Assembly session preview. All that and more after the break. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. As a reminder, we are previewing the 2019 session of the Maryland General Assembly, and I'm here with Michael Sanderson and Natasha Mayhew. Natasha, tell us about Tobacco 21. What are we talking about here? Yeah, so for years there had been um, bills put in to raise the age at which um, you could purchase tobacco in stores. Um, And, you know, a lot of studies have shown that um, with youth tobacco use, um, the younger you start, the more likely you're to pick it up as an addiction. The later you wait, the less likely you're ever to pick up a cigarette. And so there's been a push um, in other states and as well as in Maryland to raise the age to 21. Hmm. Um, And so while for years the bills have never gone anywhere, um, this year there was a big support um, from the Black Caucus to push Tobacco 21 um, and high-profile sponsors. And so we're likely to see some movement there. So right now, the age is 18 in Maryland to buy cigarettes. I know in D.C., they've raised it to 21. So Michael In California. And, in <laughs> California. And Michael and Natasha, is this another one of those where this could be a test of what the Senate and the House, frankly, this new progressive side of the Maryland General Assembly, how they'll lean moving forward? It sure seems that way. I don't. I don't know. I mean, Natasha, you'd be a better a better judge on this, but it seems like the pro health supporters for the Tobacco Twenty One movement substantially overlap with what you would think of as the progressive caucus or the progressive wing right, of right. both the House and the Senate. So even though it's not necessarily a left issue, um, you know, it, it, it's similar, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. a similar roster of players. So it may be another test like that, right? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, do we expect the tobacco companies to show up and fight this hard? 
Of course. <laughs> right. So that should be another interesting issue to watch in 2019, for yeah. sure. Right. And not just tobacco. I mean, you have the retailers. You have, uh, there's a lot of in, uh, interest from industry players in how um, this could be a major impact for health and businesses. Right. So, and, and, and again, you get back to the Senate Finance Committee also does health issues. We just, you know, we mentioned them a moment ago as doing labor matters. They also tend to do business regulation and oversight and public health issues. So that committee is going to be a really bright spotlight and no one really understands how the ships are going to fall there. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to exaggerate that, mm-hmm. but I mean, there's all sorts of stakeholders in time. They're all like circling finance. They want to watch these first rounds of bill hearings. Not my bill, but I just want to see who's asking questions. They're watching it like people do the Supreme Court trying to... <laughs> <laughs> read body language from that sort of stuff. It's it's become its own game. Yeah, a lot of questions there for sure. Another issue that is controversial and much like Tobacco 21, I think it will be a difficult issue to address, cannabis. And right now in Maryland, we know that we have legalized medical cannabis. There's a process for that. I think they still need to work out some kinks with that program, but there's a big push to legalize cannabis in Maryland recreational use. And The idea is this is happening in other states. This is sort of a trend that's moving across the country. And you could make money with uh, taxes with cannabis. So when we're talking about these big ticket items like the Kerwin Commission's recommendations possibly next year, this certainly could be intriguing for legislators to take a look at and and realize that there could be real revenue here. Lots of revenue. (laughs) But we know, Michael, this is an issue that most likely could end up on the ballot. There are a lot of questions. But cannabis in general... What, Natasha, what's the tone that you've heard around town? I know that you've been following this issue pretty closely. Yeah, I think uh, particularly at a couple of the legislative previews we've been to this week, it's certainly been one of the first issues that has been brought up. And a lot of the discussion follows us to, you know, putting it on the ballot. Um, There was certainly some talk from um, Miller at one point as to how he'd prefer just an up-down vote on it. Um, But there's a lot of consideration in play into whether or not you could do it that way just through legislation or, um, uh, you know, the process of putting it on the ballot instead. It's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, I, I don't think, I don't think by law you're obliged to do this as a ballot measure, but now that so many States have done it that way and it's been a November reckoning state by state and every, I mean, every election now we're used to looking at, well, okay, ballot questions. Here they are. Four more States have, have, you know, adult use cannabis on, on the ballot. Um, they, tend to pass. Most of the states put it on the ballot. It tends to pass. The citizens generally support it, especially if there's a revenue component and that's tied to education or public safety or something that is, you know, that is you know needed by, by citizens. So um, because it's almost, be, it's become muscle memory that this is a ballot kind of thing. Uh, and, and that also makes a strategic element. Uh, if, if this, if this is something that would have to go on the ballot, then even though people are absolutely talking about it, people are absolutely talking about this as a revenue measure, but also as a matter of social policy, um, the, there's not much pressure to finish the job in the 19th session. If you're going to do it as a ballot measure, the earliest you can do it is the fall of 2020. So passing it in April of this year or April of next year have the exact same outcome time-wise. Right. And a lot of questions, too, about what happens with people that have been locked up uh, for possession of cannabis. If you legalize it recreationally, what do you right. do there? So a lot of kinks to work out. It's not as easy as just saying, let's legalize it and make money. Right. Yeah. And, and, and we've, we've done pieces of this, right? I mean, Natasha, we, you've been following this. 
this, but we've already done decriminalization of just possession of small amounts, even if it's just for you know recreational mm-hmm. own use, that sort of thing. Uh, now you've got people walking around with recommendations from physicians and can get it at dispensaries and so forth, and that's you know that's been the law in Maryland for a little while. So we've already we've already you know interrupted the landscape here some. Mm-hmm. And then another piece to that is also looking at it from a business perspective is, you know, you have a lot of these big groups, big companies from other states that are um, making money on this and ready to come and swoop in and come into yeah. Maryland. And certainly when we're talking revenues, that's another avenue for um, having local businesses still involved. Yeah, the licensing process is still not, I mean, not worked out to everybody's satisfaction. Is that a fair way to put I think that? that's fair. Yeah, I think that's so. fair. And another issue that, Michael, might not be a priority because it will most likely end up on the ballot in 2020 or beyond is sports betting. And sports betting, we know, again, this is an issue where states around us have legalized sports betting in addition to casinos, possibly. And in Maryland, we know we have casinos, we have table games and slot machines, but there's a push to allow sports betting as well. Another way to to generate revenue. But again, kinks to work out here. And this seems like it's another ballot issue. Well, I mean, it has to be in Maryland because when, when we put in the Constitution an allowance for slots, uh, there was a clause saying we won't expand any more legal gambling without further amending the Constitution. So we now have to, if we were going to do sports betting, it seems as though we have to uh, make that an appeal to the voters and explain what the new, what, you know, what the new legal thing would look like and, and, and be called. So that seems to be the way you've got to do it. Uh, it was the U.S. It was the Supreme Court of the United States who really opened the floodgates here. Um, it had been federal law that only specific places. Nevada and you know, they were the only place where you're allowed to do it. And then like you know, Delaware had a, a tiny cutout, little yeah. carve out, and I thought Oregon or somewhere. Anyway, there were like a tiny few exceptions, but basically Nevada was the only place in in, in U.S. Um, now that it's now that it's a green light, we've seen multiple states who are ready to go and have things up and running, and we're we're still trying to you know arrange the uh, arrange things for two years from now. Yeah, I mean, we could have had it on the ballot in 2018. There was a bill introduced in 17 that would have gotten it on the ballot. Uh, that bill did not pass. So now we have to wait until at least 2020. Washington D.C. just passed a measure that legalizes sports betting, and they did it in a way that is a little bit interesting. They they let their lottery agency handle this. So there's been some talk in Maryland about, well, maybe we could let the gaming uh, mm. folks here in Maryland handle sports betting, but that would be really tricky and difficult. And there's a lot of hurdles there. So I, I agree. I think it's most likely has to be a ballot issue. And therefore, we couldn't see it until 2020. Yeah. So, I mean, the evolution of legal, either state licensed or state run gaming operations like every chapter has its own twists and turns. Mm-hmm. So this looks like just one more chapter that's going to have its own twists. And we don't know who all the players are going to be in this play, but it'll turn into a conversation about who gets what and where is it offered? And can you do things online? Or do you have to be mm-hmm. physically within the state? And where do you have to be to cash your tickets and so forth? I mean, like all mm-hmm. that stuff, every piece of that ends up being complicated, especially the, where can you go and put your money? Down. That's the big. That's yeah, the big one. Right. That's the big. And that's why it was tough to pass this past year when it was just a, you know, a hypothetical. Right. Right. <laughs> right. So clean energy or renewable energy. We know this will be discussed at length during this session as well. So 
essentially in Maryland, if you want to sell energy, you have to play by the state's rules, right? Yeah, so right. if you're here, the state can tell you how much of your energy must be, quote unquote, clean or renewable. So Michael and Natasha, we know there will be a renewed push to mandate the use of 50% renewable energy in the state by 2030. And while this proposal is unlikely to require any of that energy to be generated in Maryland, certainly some issues that we are looking at if that was to be a provision. But let's get into this a little bit. Clean energy, hot topic. What have you heard around town? I mean, this isn't a new issue. This isn't something that's just popping up for the first time. As I recall, in the 18 session, we saw competing ideas One, to get Maryland to 50% clean energy in your required portfolio, and another to go all the way to 100% uh, by a longer stretch of time. And whether whether the competing ideas actually had a negative effect and and made it harder for one to coalesce, I I don't know. But it's not like this is a brand new idea. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of movement behind clean energy, and a lot of sense that it drives economic gains by creating jobs connected to solar and to wind and the other sources of renewable energy. So uh, it's not only popular in a variety of ways. It it also you know there's an economic argument too, and we see a lot of people talking about clean energy jobs mm-hmm. as the motivator. Yeah, as much as the clean energy itself. This is a big way to shape policy. Right. And that's, I mean, this, it's a big, big role that a number of states have on, on that front. Um, the, the counter is generally that the renewable sources of energy tend to be more expensive than the dirty ones. So as a practical matter, we're talking about how much are you willing to you know, implicitly drive up the cost of buying and using energy in the state, whether you're a manufacturer or just a home and trying to have your water heater on. Uh, if, if you're using more expensive sources for your energy, that means your bill goes up. And so how much that, – that's the balance to be had. It's not, you know, it's not just you wave a magic wand and everything comes together for, for at no cost. And, and one part of this issue that I don't hear a lot of people talking about, Michael and Natasha, is if you were to require that some of this energy be generated in Maryland, let's talk about what that would mean for land preservation – agricultural industry. I mean, would there be a run on land if, if you had to have a certain amount of, let's say, solar or wind? You got to put those somewhere. And that means less land preservation, potentially less agricultural business. We're already seeing a bit of that land rush happening. I mean, we've been hearing from county after county that that they're having challenges with applications for big, you know, sort of industrial scale solar development. And by and large, they seem to be targeting agricultural areas. I mean, there's there's a variety of theories about the best places for solar panels, but the big open field that's relatively flat, that the kind of place where you'd like to run a combine, also happens to be the best big open field to stick, you know, 60 acres of solar panels. Uh, so we're seeing that pressure already. But just imagine, I mean, that's already just happening in a market where, there's generic demand for solar right. because some people just prefer it and because some states say you have to have it in their portfolio if you want to do business there. So that's kind of you – know, and, and in some cases, it ends up being just economically viable on its own, uh, particularly when the price of oil is is high at a given moment. Then suddenly other options can, can uh, look preferable. So it, that's already the case. If suddenly there were an extra demand for Maryland-generated clean energy, you'd have to think that the push 
to turn active farms into solar farms would just explode. And whatever our concerns have been over, you know, maintaining historically viable agriculture and, you know, scenic, you know, scenic bypasses and things like that. I mean, all the, all these things that we sort of care about as part of our job as stewards of land use, right. um, those pressures could be just overwhelming. And I'm, I'm not sure anybody loves that outcome, but you can see pretty easily from, you know, well, we're going to be more aggressive on clean energy. And, well, we'd like those clean energy jobs to be Maryland jobs, so let's draw a circle around them and say a certain percent of them have to come from Maryland or a certain number of these kilowatt hours have to come from Maryland. You do all that stuff in one in one big batch, and you could end up putting a bunch of farmers into the silicon business. Right. right. So a lot of questions to work out, and I think you just said it best. All of that sounds great, but you have to sort of look at what will happen if you implement a policy like that. So I think there'll be a lot of discussion about that this year, and maybe you know more than one bill will be introduced like it was in 2018. We'll have to see. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely going to see a bill. Absolutely. Uh, the, the smart money is we'll probably see multiple bills and different theories and a lot of wringing of hands over how to get from here to something that makes sense and sounds good and accomplishes some of the outcomes that, that a lot of people are, are invested in. Okay. Natasha, Michael, what the heck is going on with redistricting? We see this in the <laughs> news all the time. I know our listeners see this in the news. So essentially, uh, the courts in Maryland have said that Maryland is gerrymandered and that we need to redraw at least one district, which obviously would affect other districts. The governor, after that decision, created a commission and they've been meeting. They've been talking about, you know, what they could do to redraw districts and make them potentially more fair. They're asking the public to weigh in. But we just found out, too, that the Supreme Court uh, is going to hear that case. And this is all about the sixth district. The Supreme Court is going to hear a challenge on the constitutionality of the sixth district. So what does this mean if the Supreme Court's going to take this case, but we have the redistricting commission working now, not to mention this, we have a 2020 census coming, which is when you would redraw the lines. But apparently, according to the Maryland courts, that would have to be done before the 2020 census. So there was some urgency, but now that the Supreme Court is going to take this case, does that slow it down a bit? I mean, what are we thinking here? I don't think anybody has a clear <laughs> idea how this all shakes out. I mean, it's it's no surprise that Governor Hogan ran up immediately and said, I'm in, I'm going to create a group to redistrict because, I mean, he ran on saying we shouldn't be doing districts the way we are. Maryland's got this wrong. Right. 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 So I mean, that's, that's not a surprise that the governor mm-hmm. took that stance. It's also not a surprise that – but you know that the general assembly and by some extension the attorney general have followed through and said we're defending the decisions made through Maryland's own process. I mean we built this process, they made the decisions through the process and that's how how you're supposed to you know you defend the state's actions that way. So none of those individual steps are surprising. It's also not shocking that the US Supreme Court would say this case has enough merit we want to hear the debate and talk about it. And this will have implications nationally, right? We've sure, seen that if the right. Supreme Court rules here, if this the, yeah, if, yeah. this will I mean, have a big impact in North Carolina because they, they yeah, they I mean they semi-punted a few months ago on the Wisconsin and right. North Carolina cases saying, you know, we we just we, we don't think it's perfectly ripe and I I don't speak the language of of Supreme Court attorneys and observers not and so do, forth, not but, many do. right, but, but but as a, as a practical matter, they they didn't really come down and and speak on the issue of 
is something too political, genuinely unconstitutional. Maryland could end up being that test case, and you've got all sorts of weird things. It would be weird enough if this weren't the year 2019, <laughs> where we've got a census that's literally months away. Right, right. And, and that just throws <laughs> wrinkles into everything here. And, you know, when this commission was appointed, of course, as you said, it wasn't surprising. The courts said you got to get this done uh, before that census. So there had to be some urgency there. But Natasha, I mean, what, have you heard anything around town? I, as Michael said, I don't know what's going on or what the General Assembly will do. It seems like this is another one where we'll have to wait and see and stuff will start to trickle out as session you know, progresses. Yeah, I think so. We'll just keep our eyes open for it. Just imagine if you're Representative David Trone and you're representing the 6th <laughs> District for the first time. And you just won this trying election. trying to get in there, by the way? Right. I mean, so you, I mean, right. Yeah, exactly. But even setting that aside, I yes. mean, I mean, he's finally, I mean, everybody gets this moment of joy. They're, they're, you know, putting their name up on the wall and so forth. And people are like, dude, you're in a sandcastle. Man. Yeah. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> that not that district might not exist, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you, you might be 40 miles from your district yeah. in a few weeks. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's an, it's a really, strange circumstance anyway and given the timing that we are literally in the last segment of this you know of this 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 you know um census cycle yeah yeah. right it's it's just it's just hard to imagine that we're having this debate in 2019 Uh, but hey you know this this year's going to be upside down too we wanted to spice things (laughs) up a bit you know Okay, Natasha, I know there are various issues involving criminal justice that are on the table this session. Let's talk about a few of those. What do you see out there? Yeah, another big year for criminal justice. So a lot in store. Um, In terms of bail reform, so a couple of years ago, there was a very big push on Mm -hmm. what's going on in Maryland's bail system. And um, the courts made some changes to their rules. Now what you're seeing is a lot of people questioning, are we getting the desired outcomes from the changes that we've made? Is this really what we wanted? Is there more that we can be doing um, to address bail issues and people in jail because they can't afford to pay to get out? Right. I mean, it seems like what the newspapers have reported, I mean, they've done some number crunching and it seems like instead of people being held for money bail and under the new rules being released on their own recognizance, we're seeing people just more being held without bail at all. Right. And, and like that's, that's kind of contrary to what I think Annapolis wanted to see as the change. Right. As a, there was also lots of focus on the pretrial process as a whole, because mm, if oh, you're yeah. looking at just bail would just be one part of pretrial. Right. And so that, uh, again, for a number of years, there's been looks at, well, how do we reform our pretrial system? What can we do um, for the jails? You want to make sure that the people that are harmful, that, really a risk to society risk of flight are held but if you're not right then you know you shouldn't be held in jail right so there'll be something this year to try and maybe fix what they did a few years ago in terms of bail reform you think Got to think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and that's not the only issue. So right, right. there's been a lot of talks about um, juvenile justice and how the juvenile system mm-hmm. works and um, improvements that can be made there. Um, also, uh, behavioral health issues in jail, whether people are properly getting treatment for their substance use and mental health 
um, issues while they're in jail and then when they get back out into the communities, um, you know, these are all really big topics of um, lots that can be done um, to address the system and yes. the issues. Kevin, it sounds like there's an awful lot there. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like we're going to have to dedicate some time, uh, you know, down the road to talk about this, maybe a full episode or a half episode, yeah. because I know oh, I'd be happy to yeah, do that. No, <laughs> I think there's enough there. Yeah, we don't know yeah. what, you know, we right. need Natasha here to do that. For sure. But, but it sounds like there are a lot of moving parts and certainly some things on the table this year. So, Anyone listening, keep an eye on on things like that, it sounds like, Natasha. Yes, please do. Okay. I think we've gone through a number of big issues that Mako is, is watching and also issues that aren't necessarily county-focused, but we wanted to give everybody an idea of what you're going to see in 2019. Obviously, this is just a drop of yep. the 3,000 or so bills <laughs> that are expected to come, and you know we're all looking forward to that. So anything else, Michael and Natasha, that you're looking forward to in this 2019 session, legislation-wise or just in general? I mean, uh, next, next week, uh, MAKO will have our first meeting of our legislative committee. So, so we'll have elected officials and, ca- and county reps from across the state. Typically, just about every county will have somebody in the room every Wednesday for six or eight weeks in a row, and we'll slug through all these bills being introduced. They'll, they guide what MAKO does, and you know, they sort of set the tone for our advocacy. But um, I'm looking forward to that. We have a lot of turnover, so we'll have a lot of new members uh, of the legislative committee. And so we're working to get them, you know, here's here's where to go, here's where to park and that sort of stuff. But then sort of understanding the process and and, and figuring out where county governments fit into this big puzzle is is, it's always, you know, it's always a step by step. Yeah. And thank goodness. I mean, we had a fantastic conference. We've mentioned it. It was record numbers and a lot of newly elected officials right before session. I think that's a great you know primer as we go into session and i think that'll help a lot okay that's going to do it for our 2019 session preview we will be back next week and throughout session to talk about some of these bills and other bills that mako is watching and we'll continuously update you throughout the session but for now natasha michael and kevin signing off and we will talk to you soon